Hello, and thank you for joining us for the launch of the Zero Net 50 podcast. I'm Jennifer Deloney, and with me on this podcast adventure is Joel Stronberg. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jennifer. This year, we're going to dig into the politics of climate change in the United States. In the podcast series, you'll hear about how the climate change issue is playing out at federal, state, and local levels. But as we have this discussion, we'll always be looking at the U.S. position in the global climate community. Because let's face it, the U.S. has a global footprint on many fronts, and the climate is no exception, despite the current administration's efforts to cut the U.S. out of that responsibility. The global community has come together under the Paris Agreement, and President Trump says the U.S. shouldn't have any part in it, as it stands, because it's a bad deal for the country. That's an economic claim that truly has not been substantiated yet. It has been three years since the Paris Agreement was signed, and think tanks are only just now beginning beginning to crunch the finer numbers on the costs. And they can't be tallied merely on a financial perspective. For example, the World Health Organization recently outlined the value of health gains from the climate action versus the cost of mitigation policies. And they note that making the environment healthier, and therefore people healthier, we can save trillions of dollars in welfare costs. But speaking strictly from the financial view, there also are questions about whether it wouldn't be better for the U.S. to meet its stated goals for the Paris Agreement. The Brookings Institute, considering an approach using uh, just carbon taxes, said in early January that the world's two largest emitters, China and the U.S., would be better off participating in the agreement than withdrawing from it. So, with a global perspective in mind today, we're going to take a quick look at what is brewing at the start of 2019 in the U.S. climate community. So, Joel, let's jump into what's going on in Washington. We have a new Democratic-controlled House and some eager new representatives. What does all that spell for the politics of the environment right now? Thanks, Jennifer. It's, it's really an exciting time to be in Washington these days. The climate change has made it back onto the front pages, at least in the papers in, in D.C., um, in the form of a b- very broad discussion of something called the Green New Deal. Uh, it came in with one of the freshman uh, members of the House, uh, Alexandria Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez, she had made this proposal as part of her election uh, platform. The proposal is actually very expansive. Um, It's named after a a Depression-era program called the New Deal um, that was put into effect by uh, FDR um, that really touched almost everything uh, in society and the economy. The three pillars of of Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal um, are crea- uh, getting rid of uh, fossil fuels completely and going to 100% uh, renewables by 2035. There's another uh, pillar of the, of the uh, plan that actually creates um, high quality, hopefully well-paying jobs uh, for literally anybody that, that, that wants one. It's a guarantee which is being talked about, although whether or not it's, it really is, is broad uh, can, they can broadly uh, guarantee that many jobs is another question. But the jobs in this case are ones that uh, are flowing out of renewable energy technology, solar, wind, what have you. Um, and in part, as, a, as part of just the economic growth of these uh, clean energy alternatives, but also as a way to help the transition of, say, coal miners and uh, in other uh, individuals that are being phased out um, 
as the use of fossil fuels gets phased out. This is also something that came up at the uh, UN conference in Poland uh, the, uh, just two months ago. Um, Poland and a lot of countries uh, throughout the world are worried about um, having their unemployment rates shoot up as, um, as fossil fuels are being phased out. It's the same thing that, that's happened in this country. And so part of the Green uh, New Deal would be an answer to that. The third leg of this is actually to um, invest a lot of money, um, not only in technology development, but in projects that would help state and local governments make the transition. Financing has always been a, been a problem with renewables, um, and that's no exception now, even though they're commercially viable. Um, the, at the moment, this is really more of a concept um, than it is an actual piece of legislation. Um, I've referred to it in my writings as uh, a title waiting for a story to be written. Uh, it's not the first time, actually, that something as broad as this has been proposed um, to combat climate change. Uh, in 2007, a New York Times uh, columnist, Tom Friedman, had proposed a very similar sort of program. Um, and in fact, he'd written a book following, uh, following that. And um, the book and Friedman's ideas were picked up by uh, President Obama, and he had made that one of the one of the motivators in his um, environmental legacy, if you will. Um, it never really went very far after after that. Uh, even though Obama had spoken about it, the, the idea kind of drifted away. Um, in 2010, the Green Party in the United States proposed something also very similar to this and um, spoke about jobs and investments, uh, phasing out renewables and what have you. And because the Green Party is a pretty marginal group of, uh, of individuals, it never hit um, the mainstream either. Uh, it's somewhat surprising. I think it's taken a lot of people by surprise that, uh, that it's now on, literally on the front pages um, of everything. Uh, I've seen it in magazines, in the Atlantic, and in L even, um, in Newsweek, in Time. And what it's doing is it's creating, it's creating an environment, if you will, where, it's actually, where the problems of combating climate change are being discussed. And if nothing else happened other than um, this kind of stimulated discussion, that would be a, a huge leap forward as compared to what's otherwise been happening since Trump has been elected. The, the election um, has really put in the minds of Democrats the importance of climate change. A lot of studies and surveys have been done, and it's now kind of taken on the, on the aura of something that will, in fact, attract votes. And I think that that's something quite different than uh, had happened in the past as well. If you remember in the 2016 elections, uh, climate change was spoken of maybe once or twice at most. Um, and from that time on, and with Trump becoming president, most of the discussions about climate change have been defensive discussions. And so what we're seeing now is a situation of uh, climate change offense, if you will. Now, in truth, I don't think there's going to be, in fact, I, I can guarantee there will not be a major piece of legislation. And in a way, at least not before um, the elections in 2020, in a way what's creating is a safe haven for uh, discussion and kicking a lot of ideas um, around about uh, what should be done, where are the, where are the uh, biggest opportunities, what are the problems, for example, in phasing out uh, certain jobs and creating new ones. Uh, it's also becoming, 
in just in the first well, week, week and a half um, of the of the new Congress, 45 to 50 members of Congress have actually signed on as supporters of the notion. Um, because there's not a specific piece of legislation, it's it's hard for people to to say, well, I, I agree with the finer points of this. There is, however, some some dissension going on with this as well. Um, first of all, the as part of uh, the proposal for the Green New Deal, uh, a new a select committee on the Green New Deal uh, was actually being proposed, not only by uh, Casio Cortez but other members of the freshman class. Um, even before the election results were in, uh, Speaker Pelosi had actually been talking um, up the, the, the eventuality of the Democrats taking over the House. And if they did, she was going to resurrect a uh, select committee that she had put together the first time that she was the Speaker of the House. That committee actually had created a piece of legislation. It was headed up by uh, then Representative Ed Markey, who is now the Senator from Massachusetts. And the proposal was for a cap and trade. It made it through the House, but it never made it through the Senate and it didn't make it through the Senate because there was democratic opposition to it. And so Pelosi has a kind of a, a love-hate relationship with just having a select committee. And um, the way it was being pitched by Ocasio-Cortez and, and the, the progressives, um, both in and out of Congress, I mean, there's, there's a, a, a youth movement called uh, uh, Sunshine Rise, I think, uh, the Sunshine movement, I think is what it's called. It, it, it made something close to that. Um, and it's, I mean, thousands of youths literally um, have hit the hill um, to lobby for the, for the proposal. They're doing work at the state level. Um, and the, the positive energy that's being created is, is really remarkable. The problem with a select committee um, from Pelosi's point of view was one, she was a little bit gun shy because of the first uh, first attempt to do that. And two, you know, the Democrats have been out of Congress um, for close to 10 years. The, the, the last time a Demo the Democratic uh, majority, there was a Democratic majority in the House was in the 2007-2008 uh, period. Um, and then nothing. Uh, and so as minority members, Democratic, I mean, senior Democratic uh, members of Congress have always been have been relegated to minor roles in uh, on congressional committees. Well, now I mean, they, a congressperson has been sitting around for five or six years as the you know, the minority um, in an energy committee, the environment, and what have you. Now has a chance to be the chairman and to put their stamp on it. So there's there's some tension between the more senior uh, members of the Democratic Caucus. And the junior ones. It's also, I think, compounded too, because there is, in fact, a generational change going on. I mean, Pelosi, for example, um, is 74 years old, I think. Most of the leadership um, in Congress and the Democratic Caucus um, are older white men, to be honest with you. And, and so we're out of step. They're, they're out of step um, to a degree with what's going on in the country as far as um, new constituencies and what have you. And so I think there's an inevitable tension between between um, more senior and less senior members. Right. Well, so what what 
we see all that fresh new energy. What's going to trip those those young people up in Washington? Well, I think what what's what's going to happen. I think what people are waiting for at the moment, Jennifer. That's a that's a great question, by the way. That um, to see how committee assignments are being made and to see how people that are, are literally high coming off the uh, uh, campaign trail and having, I mean, the, they beat the odds. I mean, Ocasio-Cortez, for example, I mean, beat somebody that was the third, the third most powerful Democratic member of the House. And so they're coming into to D.C. and to Congress saying, you know, let's change things. Um, the youth that um, are now advocating and, and actively advocating both in Congress, you know, as lobbyists in Congress, um, but also in, in their hometowns, they're impatient. They're impatient for things to happen. And I think what's going to happen is that we're waiting to see a balance between new ideas and uh, more experienced. I don't want to say steadier hands, but more experienced hands, because this has to get converted into legislation at some point. And again, I think this two-year period, is it's a safe haven because there's no legislation that will be on the line. Um, a lot of the, the the rough edges can be sanded off on both sides of, of the aisle. Um, what they're looking, I think the first time where uh, that, a time that resets the clock, if you will, uh, is going into the uh, Democratic Convention in 2020. Not only to see who the, the candidate's going to be, but the the advocates, the, the, the progressive freshmen um, are really looking to have this included as a, as a permanent plank in the, in the democratic platform. There's also some tension going on too, because for example, these groups, uh, the, the Sunshine Movement and, and in, including some of the freshmen in Congress are holding back as far as any endorsement of a candidate. Um, and you would think, for example, that Senator Sanders um, and it would be a shoe in for this. And I've actually um, heard this new crop of progressives say, well, you know, maybe, we, maybe we're going to hold off. It's not enough to just say you're in favor of climate change. You have to be doing something. And there's, again, there's, there's a transition going on here. And a lot of the senior Democrats have been waiting for a long time. They believe that they've, they've earned their chops, if you will. And um, there's a certain impatience of, of, the, of the new generation um, that says, well, what, have you, what are you doing now? And what are you going to do right now that's going to help um, me when I'm your age, for example. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yep. Well, uh, obviously, there's so much to watch, so much to watch, and and so much uh, that can change week by week, month by month. And so you and I are going to keep coming back to this and keep an eye, of course, on what's on the federal level, um, but also across the U.S. and across. Uh, the entire globe. So I think that's about all we have time for today. So I hope our listeners will check back in the coming weeks for more about what's going on, uh, for example, with our youth communities, uh, work with the committees in Congress and uh, efforts at the state level. And if you 